0: Welcome to Coaching with an Accent, the research podcast focused on sport coaching. My name is Francisco Fardilla and I will be your host for today. We are finally back after an extended break and this time we have come to stay. This week we travel down to Liverpool to meet an Irishman, Dr. Colum Cronin. Colm got his BSc with Honours in Sport Management in 2001 at Northumbria University and his PGCE in 2008 at the University of Central Lancashire. One year after, he completed his MSc in Sport Coaching at Loughborough University and two years ago he completed his PhD at the University of Birmingham. Colum has worked with different public, private and voluntary sports organisations and has accumulated years of experience in youth and performance basketball. Currently, he works as a lecturer at Liverpool John Moores University, and has the blog Considering Coaching, which you can find on consideringcoaching.wordpress.com. In August, Colum and Kathleen Armour edited the book Care in Sport Coaching, Pedagogical Cases, published by Routledge. Without further delays... Here is our conversation with Dr. Colm Cronin. Colm, uh, thank you for accepting the invitation. Uh, it's great to have you here. The first question is a simple one. What led you to publish this book, um, Care in Sport Coaching? Francisco, that, that's a, a very simple question, but it's, it's quite a long answer because the book came
1: out of my PhD. Um So really, I I need to probably explain why I did my PhD. Um, And I did my PhD because I was a sports coach, a basketball uh, sports coach, not particularly successful, um, but um, reasonably committed. So coaching basketball in the UK, young athletes in national leagues, uh, older athletes in kind of uh, regional leagues, adults. And I'm coaching two or three nights of the week. I'm coaching once or twice at the weekend in games. And occasionally, we had athletes who would get into maybe a county team or maybe progress onto international teams, international underage teams. Occasionally, I would observe some sessions uh, in county teams and national teams. I was an assistant coach for a county age group team. So as a coach, I was beginning to have some experiences in kind of what coach they would call um, the performance domain where young athletes or older athletes are investing time, investing energy in the pursuit of performance. Uh, But the majority of my coaching was still probably recreational participation and domain. So I really wanted to kind of break into this performance domain and see what it was like. So in my PhD, I set about Kind of trying to explore what it meant to be a performance coach, particularly a youth performance coach, so an international coach who worked with young athletes. Uh, and to do that, I explored four case study coaches, um, and we got some interesting findings. Um, but one of the findings chapters in the PhD was a series of case studies Um, and one of the findings across those case studies is that all four of the coaches that i looked at cared for athletes and that they cared for athletes in very different ways at times so how they cared changed depending on who they were working with and where they were working the type of sport they were in their own uh, biographies their own, own belief systems Um, But there was an element of care across all four of these cases and then it came to the point of, hang on, we've got some interesting case studies here of how coaches care Um, and I thought actually this is maybe a, a nice thing to publish. So we considered, and I say we, this was my PhD supervisor and co-author, Cassie Armour, considered publishing this as individual papers. But as we thought about that, we realized that actually what we would be losing here is this thread of how you can care in different ways, in different scenarios, in different contexts with different athletes. So to keep these case studies together, uh, we thought would add value. And that's why we set about writing the book. Um, On top of that then, uh, the idea of maybe sharing these cases and looking at care in in a, a complex way across four cases, I was also conscious that when I've looked at duty of care research, it often turns pretty quickly into child protection research. Uh, or research on abuse and I think that's really important research um so this is might be work that um, Celia Brackenridge has previously done over many years for instance uh, and I think that's really important work but we also have this notion that actually caring might be something different um or more uh, all encompassing than just child protection uh, or not harming Uh, So we thought that actually there's a need for a book which kind of looks at care theory uh, in a broader sense uh, than just protecting athletes or not harming athletes. They're actually saying actually how can we help athletes, how can we care, how can we have a positive relationship with athletes. And then by keeping the four case studies in the book, it also gave us the opportunities to put in a care theory chapter where we discussed what does it mean to care um, and how can we care. Uh, so the book was really just the best vehicle to uh, discuss care in a more ambitious, moral and social sense and provide four examples of how some cultures could do that uh, in their practice, uh, in their own lived experiences, in their own situations. And um, so the book was the ideal scenario for that and it kinda took probably, you know, three or four or five years of work including the PhD to to get to that. Uh and then at the end of it I'm hoping that it helps practitioner coaches to think about how they care in their own scenarios and uh, I hope and it helps coach educators to think about how they help people to care and maybe even policy to look at, okay, what systems and environments do we create that enable coaches to have this more ambitious moral duty of care approach.
0: Um, talking a little bit about uh, methods, you have chosen case studies to, to address uh, care why did you do so? Do you believe this is um, an effective way to talk about care?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, as a coach, as I said, going back now probably 10 years or so, um, uh, I kind of came across kind of narrative case studies when I did my master's degree. Um, and we came across the old sports coaching cultures book that Cathy um, Armour has done with the... Um, Robin Jones and Paul Portrack. And it's a book that, as a coach, really spoke to me because it's got some great case studies in there of coaches about their philosophies and their behaviours. And uh, prior to that, Kathy and Robin had also done a book on PE teachers and case studies, and that was really interesting to me. Uh, and, and so I was very much invested in the narrative when I came across that stuff, I, I kind of started reading more narrative case studies worked by people like um, Dave Carless, uh, uh, Andrew Sparks, Katrina Douglas, uh, very qualitative, rich, descriptive case studies, Jim Dennison. And I, that really spoke to me as a coach because why, what I liked about those case studies is the case studies give you a chance to see the context of the case, So I could see if their coaching situation related to mine, I could see what lessons these case studies coaches were having and then I could maybe draw parallels with my own coaching context or my own coaching approach or some of the athletes I was uh, coaching. So I've learned as a coach from case studies and that's why I think actually representing care in case studies is a really good way to go because case studies enable other coaches to see what scenario you're in, what situation you're in, who you're working with, and maybe understand and empathize why something might work in that scenario or why something might be a challenge. And then the other thing about case studies that I think uh, uh, is really important is that. case studies also give you a chance to look at cases from multidisciplinary perspectives. And I think, you know, all sport and physical activity for me is multidisciplinary. So if I go for a run this evening, Francisco... Uh, that's going to be I'm going to be motivated to go for a run I might not feel confident about going for a run after a long day of work so I could look at my running from a psych perspective I could look at it from a physiological or biomechanical I could look at where I run and why I run from a social perspective so if we do a case study of any physical activity that means that practitioners can all bring their own disciplinary perspective and we can learn from lots of different disciplines and I think that's really important so in the book what we've done is when we've presented one of the uh, cases uh, of the coaches I've asked a couple of colleagues to provide a a different disciplinary perspective so we have a sports scientist who's reviewed one of the cases and he's provided his perspective and how it links like what a physiologist might think we've got some sports psych perspectives in there that might address uh, maybe some issues around burnout and and care for burnout. We've even got a sports medicine perspective in there. So we've got a medical doctor to provide a medical perspective on how coaches can care. And that, I think, is really important for practicing coaches because practicing coaches need to draw on all these multidisciplinary perspectives and bring them together. And um, so, again, case studies are not only really good for understanding the context, but they're really good for understanding the context from different perspectives. And. Um, And then to help lecturers out there, I actually use case studies in my own teaching. Um, so in my undergraduate level six teaching, I, I often give our students case studies uh, and ask them to to you know develop presentations to write reports which draw on multidisciplinary theory. Um, because as I say, coaching is a multidisciplinary and sport and physical activity is a multidisciplinary activity. So we need to draw, we need to connect these disciplines rather than just see them as silos.
0: Um, the book has been officially published in uh, in August, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, have you got already any kind of uh, feedback uh, from uh, the colleagues, from practitioners, from uh, policymakers?
1: Oh, it's been fantastic, Francisco. Um, yeah, it's outselling Harry Potter, <laughs> um, and I'm going to be able to retire very quickly. I think. <laughs> um, no, I'm only joking, Francisco. Yeah, we've had some uh, feedback from uh, some colleagues on on, on Twitter. Um, who've, you know, recommended it uh, and stuff like that. Uh, we're in the process of sending it through to some people who are policy makers and I think that's really important um, because I think one of the things the book does do, as I said, is it moves the conversation from duty of care on uh, from kind of a minimum standards duty of care. You know, if you go on your level one or your level two coaching award, there will often be a session on a duty of care, but it's often a very kind of minimum standards, you know, don't harm anybody, make sure you complete a risk assessment. And I think this book moves the duty of care on from the kind of minimum standard to saying, actually, well, how can we do care better? Should we involve athlete voice? Do we need to pay attention to athletes' needs? Um, what moral responsibilities, what relationships do we need to have with athletes in order to care for them? Um, and I think that's what the book does. And I'm, I'm hoping that policymakers will in time maybe relook at that duty of care and say, actually, maybe we shouldn't be aiming for the minimum standard of duty of care. Uh, We absolutely need to hit that minimum standard. We need to, you know, uh, avoid abuse in sport, absolutely. Uh, But I think policymakers, policy makers, coach educators, coaching systems managers will actually maybe aspire to maybe more and say, actually, how do we do a gold standard uh, duty of care? How do we ensure... We have caring climates, caring environments. How do we ensure we have caring relationships between coaches and athletes? So it's not just about not harming, it's actually about benefiting athletes. And that's where I'm hoping the book will have some um, uh, policy impact or NGB impact in that NGBs uh, might actually come and say, okay, what lessons can we learn from these four case studies which move the standards of duty care in our sports forward a little bit?
0: So in your perspective, um what do you think uh, could be done in terms of coach education to provide uh, coaches with the necessary tools to improve their caring ability? If I can, if I can put it that way.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think the first thing is that. We need to look at duty of care not as an additional supplementary activity. So, as I said, if you do you do a level one or a level two a course, we, we you know we tend to focus on technical and tactical uh, elements of a sport, and then we might include some psychological or social elements. Uh, And then what we often have is a a two- or three-hour workshop, sometimes even at a different venue, in a classroom maybe, which talks about care. And I think what that does do then is it situates care as an additional extra, something that isn't quite the main business of the coach education. And this is at the grassroots level, for instance, okay? Okay. And I think what we need to do is we need to take that workshop and say, actually, no, the relationship needs to be that we have with our athletes needs to be front and center of our coach education. So first and foremost, it should be how do we establish a relationship? How can coaches understand their athletes? Whose voices should be heard in coach and athlete relationships? Um, we need to consider our listening skills that coaches have You know, a lot of the coach education we do is around presentation skills, how coaches can talk to athletes. But actually, listening to athletes' concerns, listening to athletes' voices, listening to their own understanding of their strengths and weaknesses is a precursor to then implementing the technical, tactical, the the, you know, the pedagogical, the sports-specific stuff. So for me, it's moving the relationship front and centre, and saying once we get this relationship established, that then enables us to not only care, but to also teach, teach in a way which is consensual, teach in a way where we're focused on their needs and teach in a way where we actually understand their needs and can actually act upon them. Uh, And I don't think we can do that if care is just seen as an addition rather than seen as the core itself. Um, So for me, the caring relationship becomes a precursor to a really sound uh, pedagogical relationship rather than just a supplementary activity.
0: Um, There is a chapter in the book that I uh, particularly uh, liked to see there because I think it's often overlooked. Um, Chapter seven uh, about the cost of caring. So coaches, usually we talk about coaches as someone that has a duty of care, that needs to care for others. But the question that I would like to ask, and maybe you can give me a, a, a a good answer for this, who cares for the carers?
1: I think that's a great question. I think that's a great question because, I mean, that's one of the, the criticisms that I think the book is pro- possibly um, going to be accused of, is that actually we're placing this ambitious, moral, uh, ethical duty of care on coaches and saying they've got to be good listeners, they've got to understand athletes' needs, they've got to be motivationally displaced so I, they've got to serve the needs of the athletes and, and that's a big activity you know and uh, that's a big demand to put on coaches and coaches as I said particularly in the grassroots or the recreational game they're often volunteers they're often coaching sessions in the evenings even in high performance environments they might be volunteers but they also have the pressures of winning of fans of, of media so coaching is a very demanding activity and here I am putting even more demands on them saying that actually they've got to do a better job of coaching. Um, So caring on top of all of that could be a very exhausting activity. It could be a very emotionally draining activity. Uh, coaches could be in danger of, of experiencing compassion fatigue where you know they care so much and, and they care about so many things, about winning, about the supporters, they care for their athletes so much that actually they burn themselves out. They don't take care of their own health. So I, I think this is a really important point and that's why we put in and made sure that Chapter 7 was in there and I say there's two answers to this is the first uh, well there's probably more than two answers but two points that I'd like to make is the first is that actually in establishing a caring climate Coaches themselves may be able to receive care from their those arounders. There's some research from some colleagues in the States, uh, Laurie Gano Overway, um, and um, Brian Gerrity has also done some work on this, around how when coaches exhibit caring behaviours those caring behaviours can often be picked up and replicated by other people in their environment. So athletes start caring for each other, assistant coaches start caring for each other, and there's an establishment almost of a clear caring climate. So in, in caring for others themselves, coaches might actually create a climate in which they themselves can receive care, maybe from their fellow coaches, maybe from fellow staff, maybe from NGBs. And I think NGBs, the second part of this answer, are really should consider the cost, and when I say cost, of not caring for coaches, because as I said, you know, coaching is a very demanding activity, coaches are investing a lot of time, NGBs are investing time in their expertise. Well, to lose those coaches to burnout, to lose those volunteers or to lose those coaches, those employees um, through fatigue isn't very cost effective. And I think NGBs need to consider, actually, if we want gold standard duty of care and gold standard relationships, we need experienced, knowledgeable coaches. And they need to consider what environments are going to allow those coaches to... um, and develop and to be retained. So I think NGBs have an element to do this. I think coaches themselves can do an element to this. And I think we're seeing this in the burnout literature. When we look at coach burnout, there's some literature who are providing strategies for the individual coach. So for example, sleep, nutrition, exercise, but there's also people looking at organizational stressors and saying, okay, what organizational stressors? And is this interaction between the organization and the individual the opportunity to make sure we got a caring climate? that enables coaches to flourish and then they in turn can enable athletes to flourish so i think there's a bit of kind of a, an organizational element an individual element uh, but it's definitely something we need to consider if we want to retain good coaches and if we want good coaches and caring coaches working with athletes um, it's definitely both sides of this coin that we need to look at
0: Moving a little bit away from the book, um, I have realized that this year you have been very productive um, in terms of uh, paper publications. And I have read a couple of articles that I would like to know a little bit more about. One of them is Carefully Supporting Autonomy, Learning Coaching Lessons and Advancing Theory from Women's Netball in England, uh, which has been published in Sports Coaching Review. Can you tell me a little bit more about this paper?
1: Yeah, I'm very happy to, to, to talk about that. Um, so the paper itself is a study on um, a mass participation netball activity um, called Back to Netball. Um, And we explored some of the experiences of the coaches and some of the experiences of the women who have come back to playing netball after their participation had lapsed. So typically, these people might have played netball in school as girls, um, but then had lapsed participation, uh, maybe through university years, through work, maybe they've had children, and then they've come back in later life to play netball. And what we recognised was that um, both the coaches... And in the, in the netball participants in themselves described kind of um, care as a key facet in ensuring that their return to netball was successful. So coaches often described kind of empathising with the person who might not have played netball for 10 years, meeting them at the door, um, ensuring that they could um, they would listen to their thoughts, their concerns, and participants explained how coaches would meet maybe meet them after sessions to say okay how's, go- how's netball going for you what, what are your needs do you want to play something more competitive do you want to play something more good so they would understand their needs which is a key part of care theory which is uh, termed engrossment where coaches would listen to and understand the needs of the netball players and then the second part of key- care theory is motivational displacement so once the coaches understood these needs of the returning netballers they would act on their behalf so they might connect the netballer with a more competitive club if that's what she needed, or they might connect, uh, connect the netball with a more recreational activity uh, or a more recreational club, or they might um, they might ensure teams were uh, involved that person, or there was some social events if that's what the person coming back to netball uh, needed and desired. So, really, the coaching and uh, uh, when successful of these participants in a very participation focused activity, it was really successful when coaches took the time to understand the needs needs of the uh, participants and then act on them and I thought that was really interesting but as we kind of got more into the paper we also realized that you know lots of these people also kind of had an autonomy supportive element here and that the women could say actually this is a bit too competitive for me I need something a little bit less or this isn't challenging enough for me Uh, And what we realized was actually the care that the coaches were providing was coupled with the autonomy. Um, So we came to the discussion part of that paper then and came to this idea of careful autonomy. Uh, And in in reading around kind of medical ethics, uh, I kind of came across this idea that actually care and autonomy might be almost symbiotic concepts. Um, that work quite well together. So, for example, if, we were, if a coach was to provide pure autonomy and a laissez-faire approach and say you can do whatever you want, that can be quite a dangerous environment for somebody who hasn't played netball for quite a while um, because the powerful players who have played might dominate and that person might be marginalized. So autonomy needs to be given with an element of care. Um it can't be a complete free-for-all and we see this as i said in medical ethics where you know patients have choice but you know what sometimes the doctor knows best and something needs to be happened so you know if i'm having a heart attack in an ambulance i, I want the doctor to know best and to to keep me alive you know so sometimes um, medical practitioners need to care um while as much as possible respecting the autonomy um, and of course the other side of the coin also works when we saw that coaches if they were going to be wholly caring and, and trying to act wholly in the best interest of a netballer for example but without respecting the autonomy then that becomes quite controlling where the coach decides that they might know best and they know what's best and that becomes demotivating uh, almost paternalistic so again care without autonomy doesn't work so well autonomy without care doesn't work so well but when we combine care and we combine autonomy into this careful autonomy concept we see that there's a symbiotic relationship here and um, that actually autonomy and care work well and again we see that evidence in medical ethics uh, where practitioners have to balance you know caring for somebody with also the patient's rights and, uh, and autonomy and then also giving those rights autonomy as well also making sure that you care for the health and, and similar lessons were seen in this netball example uh, that actually when it worked well, there was a balance of care and autonomy uh, for the practitioners. So the, for me, that's a really interesting discussion and something we need to look at maybe more. Does that work in a high-performance environment? Does it work in a PE environment? Um, uh, when doesn't it work? And We might need to explore that concept a bit more. Uh, is there a balance between care and autonomy?
0: Um going in a little bit uh, a different direction, you have also published a, a paper on qualitative um, research in sport, exercise and, um, and health uh, with a, a really nice title, Sinking and Swimming in Disability Coaching. So an auto-ethnographic account of coaching in a new context. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about it? This, this seems to have been uh, it's an account of a, uh, your own personal experience uh, from what I could understand
1: yeah that's um it is in a different direction um but actually it's very similar to most of my research where you know it's narrative it's grounded in experience um it's looking to tell lived experience and stories it's looking to learn hopefully positive lessons from those stories and hopefully to situate those stories in context so other cultures might learn lessons. Uh, and basically, this paper kind of arose out of a naturally occurring opportunity. As I mentioned earlier, I was a uh, basketball coach. and I basically got asked to coach in a, in a community setting, um, which was, um, you know, a, a youth club setting. Um, and many of the participants in there were recreational participants on a kind of Thursday night a youth club um, uh, type activity. But many of them had a, a whole range of disabilities. Um, and I uh, went into that activity um, and learned many lessons. It was kind of my first time really having a sustained period uh, of uh, of working in uh, at that youth club setting and also a sustained period of working with people with disabilities. And I really found myself kind of outside of my comfort zone, outside of my normative behavior. So as I was saying, my normative coaching was kind of, um, you know, underage or adult. Um, coaching in kind of mainstream basketball with leagues competitions periodized programs session plans you know you have a game every week and that's almost an assessment of how well you've progressed you know you've got aims and targets and now all of a sudden I was in a youth club and you know some kids were upstairs in the youth club playing on the next box and playing pool and then they would come down and they would come to me for basketball so the setting was very different to what I was used to and also the range of disabilities that these young people had was very different so I really was a fish out of water and that's where this title comes in sinking and swimming Uh, and for the first few weeks of coaching I definitely sunk and I think it's really important as as a as a coaching researcher to recognize this that actually coaching is really hard it's multidisciplinary you've got lots of people in in very quickly changing environments with lots of different needs lots of different ambitions So actually, it reminded me of how tough coaching can be and how difficult it is to get right. Um, And over time, I learned some lessons from reflecting on my sessions. I had some co-authors who helped me along the way. And over time, I, I learned some uh, important lessons which helped me to stay afloat. And that's again reflected in this metaphor of kind of sinking, and later on, you know, several weeks later, beginning to at least stay afloat and get through sessions and achieve some positive benefits and have some positive influences on the young people in the setting. Uh, and the, the lessons are in there about how difficult it might be to adopt a, uh, and implement a social model of disability. There's a lesson in there about taking the time to understand the context that you're in in the environment that you're going in and there's a big lesson in there about realizing that actually it's not your environment it's the young people's environment and they have much as much power and control over it as I did so it was their youth club that I was coming into and I thought I could just turn up and do my coaching and everybody would follow me but actually I had to recognize that they were powerful individuals I had to listen to their needs observe them and some of the best benefits I had was actually going upstairs and observing what they were doing on the Xbox observing how they played and then I started to understand their ambitions their motives and that then enabled me to to coach a little bit better Uh, So I hope there's some good lessons in there. I hope people can empathize with my experience of trying something new in a different context with different athletes, struggling at first and then coming to see it. So I hope, you know, again, coaches can maybe learn from my experience and learn from that situation. And if they find themselves in similar situations, I might shortcut some lessons and they might be better prepared for it. And that's the rationale behind lots of my narrative research, really.
0: Final question uh, for you. Usually I ask uh, all guests uh, if they have um, any advice for uh, PhD students, for early career uh, researchers. In your case, I've noticed that you have explored um, a lot of different methods to make sense of coaching, um, maybe because of that multidisciplinary nature of coaching that you have uh, mentioned several times. Um, is it something that you uh, would encourage um Young researchers, PhD students, to to do to to realize that there's much more than uh, uh, semi-structured interviews and thematic analysis. Oh yeah, got, uh, <laughs> absolutely,
1: absolutely. Um, I, I think you know one of the things about being here at, at John Moores is that we've got a. Uh, we've got quite a nice uh, team here of people who are quite research active, but they're from very different perspectives. And um, so, you know, we've got Amy Whitehead, who's doing some work using Think Aloud as a research method. Um, which is grounded in kind of cognitive psychology, and it's not a method I, I, I kind of set out to explore or anything like that. It's just something I've come across through Amy's work, and I and I think that's really interesting. Uh, I've also done some work here with some of her PE team who are running randomised controlled trials, and 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 they're you know uh, they're taking a, a, a more positivist approach, and I'm beginning to see the value in these. So over time, I I, I think what I'm beginning to do is kind of appreciate. What methods can can offer at times? I think uh, philosophically, I will probably all, always rest in, in in very much an interpretivist paradigm, where I'm interested in people's experiences. But I think how we gather those experiences, how we hear those people's voices and how we prioritize their voices over necessarily the voice of the researcher is interesting. Uh, I've got some a PhD student who's considering using some visual methods in coach education. So looking at photographs, looking at... Um, um, Looking at um, video, um, so that's something that I would recommend, and I'd like to explore myself later. Um, uh, and then for me, I think things like action research, where we again recognise or collaborative action research, where we recognise that actually uh, coaching is a very difficult task. Can we collaborate with with practitioners to? To help them to to understand their context and coach better, to help them to understand their participants and coach better, and can we learn from their experiences? so action research is a really powerful tool that I think is used widely in in, in education widely in P but isn't as uh, utilized as, as frequently in coaching. And I've got a colleague, Gus Ryrie, who's doing a little bit of action research around coach mentoring. Uh, And then this idea that actually practitioners themselves have got a lot of experiences that maybe we shouldn't be so quick to judge and that maybe we should appreciate brings us back to the idea of phenomenology, um, which is... Uh, which argues that the best person to understand the phenomenon is the person who's experienced it. And this is where I think as coaching researchers, we have to be careful of preaching to coaches and uh, suggesting how they should coach. And I, I really kind of want to respect their experiences. I want to learn from their experiences. I want to prioritize their voice because they're the ones who are experiencing the phenomenon day in, day out. Uh, and that's where I think, again, phenomenological methods um You know, might be able to help us to uh, understand what it means to coach for them and what they understand coaching to be, rather than necessarily researchers putting a framework on uh, the practitioner's uh, work itself, but actually understanding theirs. So I think, you know, there's visual methods, there's phenomenology, there's action research, there's a whole host of uh, methods out there. Uh, that people should look to maybe more beyond and certainly autoethnography as well I mean you know I'm I'm reading a lot of autoethnography again I mentioned Jones I mentioned Sparks earlier on and there's some fantastic autoethnographic work out there um, that you know we can uh, learn because most coaching researchers are coaches themselves uh, or have been involved in those environments you know um, so there's lots of of methodologies out there that I'd suggest um, people maybe like uh, uh, consider um uh, to use beyond the traditional uh, and I'd encourage you know PhD students to be innovative with their methods um definitely to discuss innovative methods with their supervisors don't just go ahead and do it but check with your supervisors but actually let's see can we be innovative in in our methodologies can we be innovative in our analysis methods and uh, what methods best represent the voices of those people out there you know and um uh, maybe on that one, maybe the work of Katrina Douglas, um, you know, Alison Boschner, people like this who are doing ethnographic work, uh, might be worth looking at. You know.
0: And that was our interview with uh, Colm Cronin from Liverpool John Moores University, with lots of uh, take-home messages. Perhaps this is one of those interviews to uh, replay, pause, take notes, and reflect. But for now, we move on to our recommended paper. <music> Colm Cronin's recommendation is a paper published in 2016 in the journal Sports Coaching Review by Gretchen Kerr, Ashley Sterling and Ahad Bandili. Titled, Film Depictions of Emotionally Abusive Coach-Athlete Interactions. I had the chance of speaking with Colum Cronin to understand a little bit more about this unusual and fascinating paper.
1: They did an analysis of American sports coaching movies. Um, and I was, As a basketball coach growing up in Ireland, I was brought up on these American sports coaching movies. So this is Coach Carter and Evan G- Any Given Sunday and, and these mo- big Hollywood blockbuster movies of coaches. And they did an analysis of abuse in those movies. And I thought that was really powerful um, because their analysis showed that actually most of those movies kind of normalize verbal abuse. And actually, lots of the movies are very uplifting, there's very positive messages, but that's almost juxtaposed against some verbal abuse. And I thought that was a really interesting um, methodology to analyze um, movies that many young aspiring coaches might have watched or been inspired to, but may not have critically reviewed and maybe critically questioned as young coaches themselves. And that's maybe an example of maybe looking at film, looking at visual methods and questioning the behaviors and the messages that are out there. So that kind of kills two birds with one stone. It, it answers the methods question, but is also maybe my paper to recommend if that helps.
0: Yeah, definitely. And actually, uh, it makes me, me, me think of, uh, of something. Well, in Portugal and, and as in many uh, countries uh, around the world, this, this influence of the American cinema, uh, you know, I grew up watching these movies and to think that perhaps they, they actually might uh, influence uh, your perception of what is the role of the coach. Do, do you agree that that can also have an impact?
1: Oh, from a first person's perspective, um, I would definitely agree, um, because as I said, I'm aspiring to basketball coach. As you know, as an 18, 19 year old going to university uni- uh, up in Northumbria, um, and my role models were American coaches that I'd seen through Hollywood blockbusters or seen on the sidelines in big games. Uh, And, you know, these might be very demonstrative, aggressive coaches. And I thought that's what that's what coaching was involved. Now, it's taken a long time for me to move away from that dominant uh, normative um, culture. uh, And it's still a struggle for me to move away from that dominant normative culture. But they were definitely ingrained in, you know, the movies that I watched, um, you know, the elite sport that I watched. Um, or the clips of elite sport that i watched Uh, and i I suspect you know there'd be an interesting study in looking at the role of the internet in that now with the existing coaches you know what clips are on youtube are they critically viewed or are they accepted unconditionally and, and and how are young
0: aspiring coaches accessing coaching role models is that how they access their coaching role models And that's all for this episode, but before we go, don't forget that the registration for the Football Collective Conference is open. This year's event will take place between the 29th and the 30th of November at Ampton Park in Glasgow, Scotland, the home of Scottish football. The title of the conference is Challenging the Narrative, Critical Thinking in Football. And it will bring together researchers from many different areas, such as uh, sports sociology, sports management, coaching, psychology, etc. Tickets range from £22 for students up to 60 for full-price late registrations. We end here this episode of Coaching with an Accent. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at CoachingAccent and leave us your suggestions for future guests, future topics and interesting papers. We will be back soon with another guest, another topic, another paper and the same accent. Bye!